Thanks for downloading this podcast from Healthcare Improvement Scotland. My name is Dr Brian Robson and I'm the organisation's Medical Director. We regularly share new ideas and presentations from thought leaders in the field of innovation, improvement and integration. In this podcast we hear from Professor Bill Lucas. Bill sets out for us that we can actually identify the key attributes of people that actually make improvement happen. He calls these the habits of an improver. However, Bill also looks at systems of care and challenges us to consider whether these habits or attributes are actually present in the systems where we work. He challenges us to think within and out with our organisations about the people and the systems. Now let's listen to the conversation with Bill. Our QI Connect speaker uh, today has has one of the best titles ever seen on a name badge. As the Director of the Centre for Real World Learning and Professor of Learning at the University of Winchester, Professor Bill Lucas and his team have been studying teaching methods and learning methods that help learners thrive in the real world. His early career as a classroom teacher demonstrated his energy and enthusiasm for knowledge and learning. He was deliberately infectious in his teaching methods and stimulating his pupils to be interested in and excited by knowledge and the application of knowledge, building curiosity, care and perseverance in their learning. Over his career, his classroom has now expanded to cover the whole globe and he has contributed to international learning networks all over the world as a keynote speaker, as an intellectual collaborator, as a strategist and as an accomplished author. Bill is also working closely with the Health Foundation as they launch the Improvement Research Institute at Cambridge University, uh, which aims to uh, stimulate research and quality improvement across the United Kingdom and beyond. Bill continues to inspire across fields as diverse as education, health, social care, engineering, innovation and quality improvement. So he's a perfect fit uh, for us here today at QI Connect. Good afternoon, Bill. Good afternoon, Brian, and thank you for that very uh, generous introduction. Now, Bill, I've just passed you the ball. Uh, you, we're looking forward to your talk. So, um, I have received the ball, and uh, let's get started. Um, you'll see from the slide at the front there that uh, there are a couple of uh, organisations' logos. One, Brian has already mentioned, the Health Foundation, and my friends and colleagues in Sweden, Vinbard, uh, part of the Forte Group. I want to talk to you today about the title, Getting the Improvement Habit, and why QI is not enough. This may seem a slightly perverse thing to choose when I'm part of a series of talks that have the words or the phrase or the letters QI in them, but hear me out whilst I advance an argument that goes something like this. One of the reasons that we use QI is because improvement is an abstract concept. It's too tricky and so it helps when we're talking with colleagues in the field if we use the names of tools. Those tools are helpful but they can also put some people off. You don't have to go far in the QI world to fall over a run chart or a bundle or a lean method or an SPC or complete the list as you 
as you choose. These tools are helpful, but not only can they put some people off, they sometimes don't actually work. And there is a danger that we can find ourselves in a world where using QI tools becomes synonymous with actually improving stuff. Now the third and fourth areas of my argument go like this. Habit change, which is really what all improvement is about, is extremely complex. And we've somehow got it in our head that whether it's a tool we're using or whether it's something else we're doing in our work or indeed home life, we simply need to know some stuff and be skillful at some stuff. And I'm going to suggest to you that that's simply not true. Knowing stuff and being skillful is important, but it's not enough. We need to have habits. We need to find ourselves in situations where we routinely do one thing and not another thing. And the final legs of my argument are going to be that if we reframe the whole important enterprise we're all passionate about, namely the improvement of health, of social care, of life chances, of education, all the things that I'm imagining that all of you care about, then it may help if we reframe the nature of the activity. And that in turn may help all of us who are involved in education whether it's the initial professional formation of doctors and nurses and allied healthcare professionals and pharmacists and the rest, or whether it's the um, ongoing learning that is so critical in all organisations. So, that's the argument, but let me start by presenting to you the framework that I want to share. Here it is. It's something that emerged from work with colleagues uh, across the world and supported by the Health Foundation. And in this diagram, you can see the business of co-producing health and social care expressed as a series of five habits, each habit broken down into three, if you like, sub-habits. But that's uh, a little dull, so let me invite you now to imagine somebody you work with, somebody you admire possibly, who's a really brilliant improver, whatever you understand by that expression. Just follow them now on an imaginary journey and put your clock if you think of the circle as a clock, at about half past ten. So we're in the learning zone. And uh, you've just finished doing something with them, and the minute you've finished, they're full of questions. In fact, whenever you're with them, they're full of questions. And just as you think you're moving towards a conclusion or an answer, they're after some new problem. They're reflecting that maybe although they've made progress, they haven't yet got the answer. And of course, they're always reflecting whether it's the formality of an after-event review or the constant question of how can we do this better. And as you move around this imaginary clock face, you realise that whenever you're with them, they're constantly seeing it as their job, not just to do stuff, but to help others to do stuff, to influence the way people around them behave and act and think. That requires them to be empathetic, to understand other people's feelings and perspectives, to be facilitative, I can't tell you to do stuff, well I can, but you may not do it. And because of the fact that it's tricky to persuade people, I'll need to be comfortable with conflict. As you move around to the next segment, to the resilience segment, you'll see that improvers, and just ask this question of yourself too, have to be natural born optimists, or at least learned optimists, because we're going to have to deal with stuff which doesn't always go right. 
We also need to be calculated risk takers. Nothing will be gained if we don't take risks, but we need to be calculated because we're dealing with people's lives and people's quality of life. There will often be contexts where there is no one answer and working in a complex system like health and social care, we're going to need to be able to tolerate uncertainty. Down at the bottom in the green segment, we'll need to be full of ideas, to be uh, generating ideas left, right and centre, but at the same time to be critical thinkers because many of the ideas will need to hit the cutting room floor and we'll be need needing to be team players. If you think about the great human advances in the last uh, decade or so, think of the Hadron Collider, which would never have been possible without enormous team play, or think of um, uh, the uh, unravelling of the human uh, DNA uh, strands, uh, never possible without uh, a deal of uh, collaborative activity and in that case a certain amount of com competitive activity. And finally here on the systems thinking um, mobile turquoise uh, segment, uh, this is critical. Uh, we need constantly to be making connections, to be making new, new connections and new meaning to synthesize and of course to be acceptance of accepting of change in a complex system in which one change in one part of the system can lead to changes in other parts of that system. So there's the frame and now I want to go back and make a few arguments in the way that I suggested at the beginning of this. Many of you will be familiar with the work of Paul Battalion and Frank Davidoff over the years. Here's a cogent reminder to us of the importance of making change making the, uh, the core of our work uh, as we uh, look after others. Uh, it, it's for too often, I think, in many people's cases, change making is a project or change making is that irksome thing that appears in the any other duties element of our job description. It's something that somebody is requiring us to do. Until that becomes normal, Paul and Frank argue, uh, we really will not continuously be able to improve healthcare. As Brian said, it's my privilege to be working with Professor Mary Dixon Woods and colleagues at the new Institute for uh, Improvement Research based at Cambridge, but uh, uh, working in collaboration with many partners across the UK and as Brian intimated more uh, uh, widely as we find our feet. Uh, this paper recently written by Mary and her colleague uh, at Lester Graham Martin uh, lays out some of the territory I want to cover and some of the territory that will be being addressed by the Institute. It reminds us that something between 81 and 89% of uh, all that we do in healthcare, in the NHS, in the UK, think about your own system, is reliable. That means that something like 11 to 19% of what we do is unreliable. She reminds us that so much of QI work is time limited, is served up as projects. She reminds us too, please don't uh, take to the drink or feel unnecessarily anxious at this apparent critique of QI, that many QI interventions are not well described. Many of them don't describe the context and many of them assume that the intervention will work in multiple contexts when it doesn't. Perhaps most powerfully of all, many of the QI methods that we currently use simply don't work. 
Some of the lean examples fall into that category. Sometimes they work and sometimes they don't. And many of the uh, implementation techniques that do work, let's take PDSA as a reliable, when reliably used as a, as a good intervention, uh, many of them are not reliably used. And in a recent paper by Julie Reed and colleagues at Imperial, um, uh, published in the BMJ Quality and Safety that many of you will know, um, there's a very nice description of the low adherence even to such a technique as PDSA. So all is not well in the QI world. It's not well because QI is done by many wonderful enthusiasts. It's done locally and the Institute wants to work alongside all of those I'm imagining who may indeed be on this call who want to extract the learning juice from the QI orange. So the Institute's vision is of a world in which it becomes the largest systematic producer of learning. It is of course learning that is the glue that keeps the improvement system on the road. I'm mixing my metaphors, forgive me. We've had oranges and glue and you name it. We'll have more before I've finished. It was John Berwick, wasn't it, who talked of the ethic of learning that we need if any system is to improve. And we need that not just when stuff goes wrong, but we need learning to be normal. We need change making to be normal. And that means we need habits. We need habits to be part of our discourse. Now, look away if you're not the person who wishes to look at a naked woman at a window. Um, in fact, look more closely because this rather well-known image uh, that it purports to be a woman at the image, something uh, at the window, something that uh, my colleague and friend Guy Claxon and I write about in our book for the BBC on creativity, the creative thinking plan, she's not a woman at all. She is a cat and on top of the cat a shelf and then a pot plant with fronds that look a little like hair and then a curtain down the right hand side and that is a wine glass in the middle of the picture. And you see, there is no woman at the window. And some of you completely lost the plot because there in the lovely sunshine, um, sunshine down here in Winchester where I am today for a rare moment, there are some undergarments swinging in the breeze. There is no woman at the window. Now, now you've seen that, I'm sure rationally you will accept that. And I can't hear you, but I'm imagining that you do. But actually, if I ask you the question, can you still see the woman at the window, most of you will say yes. Herein lies a major problem of our human perception and of our ability or lack of ability to change habits. Why is it so tricky, except maybe on audit day, to reliably, that's to say 100%, use the hand sanitizer when you're required to do so? Why is it so tricky? Well, think about this for a second. Is it that we don't know about infection control? That we don't know about the power of soap and the power of cleansing gel? I think not. Is it that we don't have the skill to use a, a, a conventional handle, a squeezy bottle, or one of those handles that comes out a long way so we can use our elbows? I think not. No, it's something more subtle. It's something about the cues we get from the environment, the cues we get from the culture, um, our own inner prompting that makes us 
not see a woman at the window, but see something else, and see something that triggers a response, which is the right response. And that's the kind of habits of improvers that we need. Now, another reason this is tricky is that we are deeply resistant to changing our mind. Uh, this is David Gleischer's formula. If you don't know it, let me introduce you to it. It's very simple, very algorithmic, uh, very algebraic, and it goes like this. To overcome your resistance to change, or indeed anybody's, you need to have three things in place. One, you need to have your dissatisfaction, D for dissatisfaction. You need that to be surfaced. The reason I need you to wash your hands is because if you don't, we suffer from, and then you complete the sentence. Then we need the B, the vision thing. We need a clear expression of purpose in all that we do. And finally, we need a first practical step, F, the first step. That's to say, in this case, in the example I've just been using, to use the hand sanitizer. Now, I'm using a simple but tricky example, uh, but I could be using lots of other examples, and I'd love you to be thinking of them as we go through. So, why now? Why uh, a focus on habits? Well, I think there's been considerable interest in the scientific underpinning of what we're doing. There has been, I'm delighted to say, an expansion of courses run by universities. Uh, when we looked uh, at the uh, British UCAS database, there were more than 30 postgraduate and master's level courses in this area. And there are many independents, and I'm sure many of you in universities are offering them uh, right now. Here in the UK, the Medical Royal College is very interested in the, uh, in, the, in the implication for continuing professional development and for initial professional formation. The Q community, already mentioned by Brian Robson, here in the UK, led by, uh, by uh, the Health Foundation. There's a lack of buy-in uh, from uh, too many clinicians and too many professionals to some of the techniques used by QI. Forgive me, um, my global colleagues, for these acronyms, but uh, academic health science networks, and uh, I won't even try and tell you what clerks are, but they're a wonderful mixture, mixture of uh, academic and practice. Um, we were very delighted in Scotland to receive support from the Scottish Chief Medical Officer. I'll show you a slide on that in a second. And I'm excited at the moment to be working with colleagues in Sweden and Denmark and uh, the States, uh, just for example, uh, uh, in, in this different way of shining a light on the important challenge of improvement. And, and finally, I think there's a lack of compelling theory of change. Why are we doing this? Why, uh, why is this important? And I'm going to offer you one right now. But before I do, just uh, uh, you might like to, if you haven't looked at the excellent uh, report by the Chief Medical Officer in Scotland called Realistic Medicine, where you'll see uh, she's very kindly advocating the use of our frame. So my theory of change goes something like this, that um, if we want sustainable change, if we want those things at the bottom of the slide, if we want the considerable value that patients will have if we embrace an ethic of learning, then we need clearly to articulate the kinds of habits which improvers need to have, as well as the knowledge and skills. We're quite good on knowledge and skills, less good on habits. Then we can more precisely specify the learning, and I'm going to introduce you to the idea of signature pedagogy later on. And then we can build the capability that the system needs. And that's 
where I want to take you. So, where did we get to? Where did this come from? Who else has thought about habits as a way of framing human endeavour? Well, a, a very, uh, an eminent uh, psychologist, Lauren Resnick in the United States has, I think, put her, uh, her finger on this uh, very cleverly in describing one's intelligence as the sum of one's habits of mind. And I think um, one's QI intelligence is, in a sense, just that. It's certain habits of mind of the kind that I've been describing to you. Scientists have uh, thought about this too. Here's a, a very interesting uh, paper that Kalik uh, and Carla and colleagues uh, uh, developed to describe the different ways in which science itself can be framed not just as a series of uh, areas of knowledge and skill, but also as a series of vital habits of mind. Those, by the way, um, will uh, uh, really seriously um, help us in uh, thinking about um, the habits of mind that we need as improvers. I was just distracted for a second there, multitasking as my uh, computer was giving me an odd error message, forgive me. In our own work, we've been looking at engineering. Brian mentioned this earlier on. Engineering is quite like healthcare in that it's multidisciplinary. And we developed a set of engineering habits of mind. Uh, thinking like an engineer is the publication that you can find it in. And as we developed this, we found it a very powerful way of engaging with schools and colleges and universities in describing engineering, not in terms of maths and physics, uh, which often puts off some girls, for example, but in terms of making things work and a set of habits of mind. And then it was possible to move from the engineering habits of mind uh, to uh, thinking with them about the kind of... Oh, we just lost um, the screen there. I'm going to carry on talking, uh, but I've just lost my screen uh, here. And I'll just uh, ask you to pause for a second. Not sure why we've lost that, but we have. So I'm going to uh, hope that I can get that back up. I can't. I'm going to have to hope that I can just carry on talking and ask my colleagues in uh, Scotland to take control. Um, we can come in here, Bill, just so your, your computer... Computers have a habit of doing that, that sort of thing, that's for sure. My computer is completely uh, gone. I'm just uh, inviting my uh, colleague, Carol, to see if we can get the uh, computer up. Um, whilst I do that, uh, let me assume that you know where I am and that we'll seamlessly carry on and that you'll... Uh, uh, yes, I'm back up. I'll, can you see me now? Uh, we're still at the site with the habits of an improver. Okay, I'm just uh, re-engaging with the uh, computer. You can hear me all right. Yeah, David Grayson's equipping from New Zealand. Needs some machine learning. Thank you very much, David. Uh, I think it uh, must be 4.30 now in New Zealand. Uh, good to have you on here. Um, I'm trying one other thing to see if that gets me on. Uh, specified file fails to run. Okay, I'm going to carry on in audio way, otherwise we'll waste everybody's time. So I'll just assume that you will uh, just let me know when you've clicked on. So click on now, please, to the short version of the uh, article, Getting the Improvement Habit. Uh, if you can't bear to read the whole pamphlet, then uh, you can download this from BMJ uh, Quality and Safety. And now click on to the next slide. 
uh, might the habits of mind perspective help us to do various things? I want to argue to you that the habits of mind framework enables us to think more precisely about what we want in terms of our desired outcomes. It in particularly avoids us to, uh, 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 it avoids the, the danger of QI enthusiasts for simply filling the curriculum with more stuff. It provides, we're finding, a really good framework for formative conversations across uh, different fields. It can be a, a, a real spur for debates and conversation when trying to understand how people do things. Uh, and it's all part of the argument I'm making uh, that we make improvements normal. So click on now, please, to the next slide, the idea of signature pedagogies. Um, uh, the, the, the idea comes, click on, please, uh, from uh, a, a guy called uh, Lee Shulman. Um, and I'll come to that in one second. But before I do, uh, let me just remind us the nature of the beast here. Um, the challenge of converting knowledge and skill into habits of mind is a, is a tricky one. And this slide has, I think, uh, three elements to it. So if you click right through so that we can see the David Perkins reference, that would be fantastic. So it's a bit like Aristotle's idea of phrenesis. What people do when they're improving stuff requires their, their thoughts, their knowledge, their skill, and their sensitivity, as David Perkins puts it, to occasion. This is the context in which we live. It might be human context, environmental context. It might be that it's different on the ward from in the community setting. It's different in the primary setting from the secondary setting and so forth. And I think uh, here, please click on to the next slide, uh, it's absolutely clear that our current learning methods are not yet up to the job. And uh, Greg uh, Obrink and colleagues uh, have a lovely paper here which uh, reminds us how uh, too often uh, we're just not uh, uh, getting uh, what, uh, what we need from the teaching and learning we have. And I have a moment of joy when I think I might have taken control back. But let me just see. Can you give me control back and let me see if I can uh, do that? We've just... Uh, clicked onto a slide called Piaget, and I'm now the presenter. And I'm just going to click back to the slide I had. Great. So our learning methods, I'm sure anyone on this call will say to themselves, well, that's not us. That's old hat. Uh, but sadly, in 2011, when uh, this particular group looked at the kind of ways in which uh, QI is developed, too often this was the case. And I know from my understanding of many of you whose logos I recognize on this call, uh, this would absolutely not be the way uh, you would be doing it. Neither would you simply be throwing a, uh, a life raft of a, of a bit of psychology here and there, although psychology is not a bad thing. And Piaget, um, uh, I particularly enjoy his uh, definition of intelligence, not far from, I think, a definition of improvement. Uh, his definition was reportedly knowing what to do when you don't know what to do. Pretty close, I think, to uh, much of what we do in the world out there. So here's the idea of signature pedagogy. Uh, it's something that Lee Shulman uh, is particularly known for and has been uh, increasingly applied in the professions. Um, and I think it has something to offer us here in the uh, uh, science of learning about and for improving health and social care. What he's asking us is the DNA, if you like, of learning methods that work well. What are the thumbprint of really effective QI methods? And uh, I think we're beginning to have a better idea here. And now I go back to the um, engineering and an analogy I was using earlier on. 
And in engineering, I think we might well have uh, said that a core, powerful signature method would be the engineering design process. And when it comes to the engineering habits, it's possible to look at those and think of each of those six habits and think of a set of learning methods that would be likely to lead to the kinds of things that we'd be trying to get. So if you're trying to get engineers to visualize stuff, then you're going to use modeling and mental rehearsal and infographics and storyboarding. If you're going to get, uh, let's look at the improving section of that, if you're going to uh, seek to, it, to, to encourage the engineering habit of improving, then planning and hypothesizing and analyzing and reflecting and developing what Carol Dweck calls a growth mindset will be helpful. Now all of this reads across, I think, to the area that we know well, where I think we might say that the plan, do, study, act cycle is a, a core method, is if you like a core aligning signature method. And if we now ask ourselves, so what are the other methods that we might be talking about here, then I think they might include some of these areas. Sustained opportunity really to be part of a health and social care context. They might be coached assignments. They will almost always involve peer learning and that ability to uh, reflect and learn from the situation. Back to my metaphor of the squeezing the learning juice out of the situation. They will often involve mentoring. And they will almost always inquire uh, or involve us in inquiry, in thinking how how we can um, ask better questions, if we can pr find problems as well as solutions. And they'll leave us with some tricky issues like the balance between theory and practice and which knowledge and domain systems and skill areas to use most. So we're nearly there. Um, I, I promised half an hour and I'm pretty close to uh, delivering that. So my argument so far has been that QI is important uh, and many of its methods are splendid and work well and some of them don't. Even the ones that do work well, we don't always use reliably. Sometimes QI can put colleagues off. Um, sometimes QI can inadvertently lead us to focus on knowledge and skill. Um, so people can be so close to statistics in a statistical process control activity that they forget to notice other things. Uh, and sometimes the knowledge and the skill that we put stage center takes us away from the habits that we need. If we can better specify the habits, we can perhaps better specify the learning and the pedagogies that might lead us to acquire them. This slide may appear to have nothing to do with what I'm talking about, but I think it's central. Here is an expression of Don Berwick's ethic of learning. Many of us, myself included, travel on aeroplanes far too often, and at some stage we have a safety video which reminds us what we do in the air in the event of an accident when oxygen masks will fall down. And if you travel with a child, it can be a slightly stressful moment as the video reminds us that we must put the oxygen mask on us on ourselves first before we attach it to our child or our young passenger. And that's strange because we want probably to help others first, but it's absolutely illustrative of what we're talking about here. If the system is going to improve, then we have to improve the learning of the people in that system. We need systematically to harvest that learning and then to choose learning methods, pedagogy if you like, signature pedagogies, that make it more likely that people learn how to do what it is they need to learn how to do. 
So back to the model for the last few slides. So I want us now to consider uh, whether we find this a helpful model. I hope we do. Now, I'm certainly not for one second arguing that it replaces knowledge and skill. I'm arguing that it might be a, a useful adjunct, a useful complement to thinking about the knowledge and skill needed for improving health and social care. Here I now um, uh, ask you graphically to reflect on your own practice. What do you already do that is really helpful in improving uh, influencing skills or uh, developing creativity or building in systems thinking to all those that you work with and to ask and answer those questions and to continue that dialogue. A friend and colleague of mine, Peter Davey, and, uh, uh, and, and managers and others up in uh, NHS Tayside, to use a Scottish example, have been developing thinking about this. And here are just some very simple but important ideas about how they're building this into uh, some of the work of early stage doctors and it might equally transfer to almost anyone else. Uh, Peter and I will be presenting this at the uh, ISQA event next week in London if you're uh, by any chance going to be there. And I'm hoping that this talk might be the stimulus and I'd love a dialogue with colleagues from across the world so where we can harvest good ideas being used by others elsewhere. Now, just before I close, I want to introduce you to Ruby. If you're a, a watcher of films in English, you may be familiar with the film Educating Rita or the Willie Russell stage show. Um, Rita gave us, and us is Guy Claxton and myself, the idea for a book about Rita's imaginary granddaughter. This is a book for parents. This is a book for all of us, whether we're parents or not. And it's a book that finally takes the arguments that I'm advancing in health and social care back to school. Because we imagine what it would be like if, as well as learning great science and wonderful English and whatever language you speak and uh, important mathematics and uh, interesting geography and compelling um, history, as well as all of that, we also we, we imagine schools where you go to school and you acquire confidence and curiosity and all those words beginning with the letter C. All those soft skills, those non-cognitive skills that are so vital if we're going to be able to learn or improve anything in life. Well, thanks to Bill for a great QI Connect talk. And if you want to hear how the questions went or Bill's reflections on his talk, then you can get the full recording on the Healthcare Improvement Scotland website or on YouTube.